0: Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness. Great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gagel with Greatness, and I'm so excited today to welcome Michael Beer of Harvard as our guest today. Welcome, Michael.
1: Well, hello, Gretchen, and thank you for inviting me to talk about my new book.
0: Yeah. So before we get to that, and I'm so excited about your new book, we here at Greatness are focused upon talking about great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. And you, Michael, have definitely dedicated your life to helping organizations achieve greatness. What what originally launched you into your studies? I always like to start with the, the story of the why and the passion.
1: Well, the preface of my book actually describes it. I uh, had the good fortune to actually start my career at uh, Corning Incorporated. It was then Corning Glassworks when I, many years ago uh, and uh, was lucky to have a whole bunch of managers come to me with various problems that uh, I didn't know how to solve all had to do with some aspect of organization effectiveness organization change and transformation new strategies uh, were usually the reason so uh, i had this wonderful uh, experience with uh, tom mcavoy who was a division manager later became president partly as a result of uh, our joint collaborative work uh, in transforming his business unit he had taken it over Called me to have lunch he says uh, you know we've been cutting costs for two years but the organization is just not able to uh be effective enough to to create new products that we require to uh serve our new market our new consumer oriented market in the television industry without going into the details uh we we really created a systemic change effort systemic means that it dealt with the leader the leadership team and the larger organization and the transformation of all three levels of that into an alignment with what the strategy was. Uh, and it was done through developing what an earlier version of what I call honest, collective, and public conversations. Tom uh, commissioned a set of interviews with people in his organization. He asked for the results of those conversations, feedback uh, for he and his senior team, there was some discussion. There was discussion then of what and how the organization could be realigned uh, to uh, achieve that new strategic objective of new product, uh, rapid product development. Uh, that led to changes in how the senior team worked. It led to changes in Tom's uh, own. Uh, leadership of the organization, and it changed the organization's design, process, management processes for reviewing projects, uh, for enabling new projects to arise, for developing priorities, uh, for allocating resources, and uh, a structure of cross cross functional teams, which were very uncommon in that in that time period, uh, and uh, to to enable cross activity, cross functional. Uh, coordination, and there had been a culture of antipathy and anger of one function with another. Uh, a year and a half, uh, and and one of the things that uh, Tom did, uh, the third, the final thing he and his senior team did was to go around to the whole organization, some thirteen different locations, including corporate headquarters, uh, staff groups who were connected to the to the business unit, uh, and influence its activities uh, to uh, uh, tell them about. Uh, what they had found and what they were trying to do. And at the end of each of these conversations, Tom, uh, with some discussions with me first, decided to uh, tell everyone what he thought, what he learned about himself and his own leadership style. So it was a very uh, humbling, humble kind of thing to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he did this in 13 different locations. About a year and a half later, uh, I was at a management meeting uh, with he and his staff, And at the end of the meeting, he presented me with an oil can, Uh, one of these things with a big spout that you use to, to, you know, oil uh, an engine on a car or any machinery for that matter. And uh, it was filled with alcohol and and it said at the front, the emotional oil can. Hmm. And what Tom was trying to communicate to me was that the whole culture and ethos and, and climate in the organization had changed dramatically as a result of this systemic change. And uh, that, that uh, really uh, fueled that particular transformation were very early ideas for me, but they were seminal. And over the years, I've created, I've, I've developed those ideas even further, applied them in very different ways in different domains towards different kinds of organizational purposes and, and strategies. And the book, in many ways, is a culmination of everything I have learned. Uh, about organizations and about organization transformation. And by the way, the book title is Fitness to Compete.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, uh, definitely. Why honest conversations about your company's capabilities are the key right. to a winning strategy, the balance of that title. But back to this transformation just for a moment, Michael, it's it's so amazing to see when one of these transformations really works and that it has created the the seed for you know years of research on your part and application in more and more organizations to the point where you've um seen what works and and why it works. So why this book now? I I you know I my bookshelf uh the 50 books that I ship to Australia yours are among them. Um, and I've been just a, a huge fan of your work. But why this book now, Fitness to Compete?
1: Well, there are probably two or three reasons. One of them is that uh, uh, the, most, the most important one is that uh, this is a culmination of 30 years of enabling uh, truth to speak to power so that an honest conversation can be had in a safe, uh, non-threatening way about what is really going on in the organization, the good, Mm -hmm. uh, the bad, and occasionally the ugly uh, that is holding the organization back from achieving its strategy and for living to a set of values or cultural purposes that management has espoused. Uh, Or if it hasn't espoused, to discover that those don't exist or need to be strengthened in some way. And uh, so after 30 years of, of doing this and seeing the power of these honest conversations, uh, I felt compelled to uh, uh, put, put this book together. That, that's one reason. The second reason is, and probably maybe the most important reason, is that I have come to believe that one of the main, the main underlying reason for all strategic failures, you know, they're said to be a bad strategy, a bad leader, a poor culture, bad processes, uh, poor products, you, you name it, there are, there are a thousand reasons given sometimes, and some of them are probably true in, most, in some instances, depending on the circumstance, are really not the underlying reason. The underlying reason is the lack of the ability of the organization to have an honest conversation, to discover where it is not fit, to compete, where it does not fit, does the organization does not fit either the values or the strategy. By that, I mean aligned here. Uh, and, and if you have those conversations, it inevitably reveals uh, what needs to change. Peter Dunn, who uh, headed, was a CEO of, of uh, a restaurant chain here in, in the U.S., uh, applied this process at the corporate level and in many of his stores, because that's where the action was, the customer service problems and so on. And uh, basically, he said, you know, this this kind of, a, of a, a conversation through what we developed and called the strategic fitness process was, you know, was really powerful. It allowed people to make a difference Key people to make a difference in what what we did and how we did it, and frankly, it made my job easy, because after learning what people below me saw as the problems that needed to be resolved, all I had to do was to essentially, you know, take action on those things, because they told me they Mm -hmm. they gave me the agenda. Uh, It doesn't mean that he didn't have an agenda for strategy and direction. But the rest of the agenda was was developed in part by these conversations.
0: Oh, my gosh. I can I can take this in so many different directions, Michael. You know, similar to you, 30 years ago, working for Ralston Purina, we bought Beech Nut Baby Foods, which at the time was a convicted felon for adulterating apple juice, if you remember yeah, that. Yeah. We bought it from Nestle. And I was part of the management team that had a year to turn it around. We were losing a million dollars a month. Uh, we broke even in nine months. I'd 27 years old. I had 800 union employees. who was responsible for a $28 million operating budget, and boy, I just dove in. And I'd never run a baby food plant. I'd run a cereal plant and a dog food plant. And I thought these people know how to fix these problems. Um, I'm going to listen to them. <laughs> and, and but and we did. I mean, we turned it around, and it was just a it was another of these transformations that you just described, but. Where does that come from, that, that ability to have those really candid conversations and create uh, you know, the psychologically safe um, environment where right. these conversations can actually happen within an organization?
1: Well, the basic argument I make in the book is that these are very difficult to do. It's just a humanly difficult thing to do. Just think about how difficult it is to talk to your spouse or significant other uh, about problems in the relationship, uh, it it's just very mm-hmm. difficult to do. And if you try to do, you're you're afraid of hurting somebody, you're afraid of being hurt. Uh, you don't want to make a mistake. Sometimes mistakes are made. So first of all, it does require some general willingness, uh, some general orientation to seeing the organization and its people as a resource, and also as mm-hmm. the potential for. Really, the way you're going to turn things around. If you don't have that perspective, you probably don't start into these conversations in the first place. But the other main reasons why it doesn't happen is because I find that most managers don't know how to do it. They simply don't know Mm -hmm. how to do it. They know how to do budgeting. They know how to do strategic planning. That's an analytic uh, discussion of strategy uh, and what needs to be done. But they simply haven't figured out how to have a what I call this collective honest conversation, meaning collective Mm -hmm. that the organization either directly or indirectly through representatives, which is really what our process is about, uh, is in the conversation. They know what the problem is that the organization is trying to solve, the strategy it's trying to execute. They understand that what they what they see as barriers will be consolidated into a set of themes that these themes will be a subject of discussion with the senior team by those who interviewed them and then the senior team will deliberate on what they're going to do and are going to go back to the to the people who reported to make sure they heard it right and that they're responsive to those to those inputs and then announce everything to the whole organization so that everybody knows what was said what the what the good bad and ugly if there was any uh, came out of this conversation and what the action plan is. And this, they simply don't know and, or, and often don't understand how powerful that really is in creating trust, in building commitment, in getting, first of all, the right information and then building trust and commitment to change it. Uh, a lot of managers don't, don't understand that. And one of the reasons they don't understand it is because hierarchy, as I argue in the introduction, is a barrier to connecting the senior leaders to the organization because there's Mm -hmm. all kinds of reasons why senior leaders don't think they need help because basically they have all the resources and the decision rights to do things themselves. Uh, I'm overstating this, but basically not to over involve or not to involve others. Uh, People below may have a lot of thoughts about what's getting in the way because their daily experience is telling them, you know, I'm having trouble with function A or B. Uh, They don't seem to be cooperating or we don't have the right mechanism for conversations or the resources or the priorities are wrong or the resources are not being allocated or where it might be. But they can't really raise those issues. So it's an it's an inherent problem as a result of hierarchy. And I call the result of this organization silence. This is kind. of, In other words, organizations generally don't speak up about what's going on. Think about think about the recent political uh, situation in the U. Uh, here in the U.S., when you know, uh, 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 you need to, you had a uh, uh, a whistleblower come forth with some very damaging information. It happens in all kinds of organizations. We have whistleblowers, but by the time the whistleblower speaks up, if they speak up at all, uh. Because they're fe- there's fear of damaging their careers. In fact, there's evidence that whistleblowers uh, generally come out of this very badly. Uh, by the time that they even speak up, it's too late. The, the you know the problem is already there. So the argument right. I'm making is that this is a uh, an antidote uh, to ineffectiveness. It's an antidote to scandals and and problems. Think about. Uh, Wells Fargo and the hundreds of millions and reputational damage they suffered uh, lost. The CEO lost his job. The board, many of the board members lost their job or resigned. And uh, it was all because they couldn't they did not have a discipline. And that's what I really argue in the book is necessary. A discipline, an institutionalized way uh, for self-governance, what I call the learning and governance process. Uh, for discovering what's going on and, and making things better, not enough CEOs or, or leaders of any business unit, like yourself, you did the right thing. Uh, have that courage to and, and that 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 sense that people really can contribute to helping me, because I, you know, I'm in power. What do, I, I don't I don't think managers think this way uh, consciously, but I think in many ways that that's going on. There's also this ethos so that leaders are strong. They decide, and that's it. And if they don't do that, uh, then they're not good leaders. So asking for help may be seen by many as an admission that they don't know what they're doing, which is nonsense, Mm -hmm. of course, Uh,
0: because because no
1: leader knows exactly what to do in the first place.
0: Yeah, that was my... My point at the baby food plant, I didn't know what to do. And so I had no choice but to ask the people, um, how do we, you know, we we couldn't go three days without a lost time accident. Right. Um, how, how do we fix yeah. this? How do we fix that we're throwing away a large portion? And, and the problems that you're talking about, Michael, it's been very interesting to come to Australia. We just had a Royal Banking Commission here. Um, where we had very similar things happening in Australia that were happening with Wells Fargo. So this isn't just a US phenomenon. Yeah. It's definitely something that's um that that is a global phenomenon. And the word that kept popping into my mind as you were talking is transparency.
1: Yeah. No, that's right. There isn't enough transparency. And, and that transparency is essential to make anything better. Now, think about, I, I use this, uh, this example, uh, this kind of uh, framework in the, in the book, in the introduction. Think about uh, Ed Deming, Edward Deming, and the quality movement. Uh, Deming is well known, he's famous for saying that you don't blame individuals for what's going on, you blame the system. So his argument is you, you can't create a better production system and Toyota has made a living on this, right? They're one of the leading auto companies in the world. Uh, That basically what you want to do is to to get your own people uh, to be involved in identifying problems on the production line, uh, make it possible for them to even stop the production line if they see a problem, identify the problems, get them involved in solving the problem, and that is basically simply stated what the quality movement is about. There are different methods for doing this, but but that's what it's about. The problem, I argue, in org- in the introduction is, there's no such process that exists for organizations. In other words, we have no process for ensuring the organization is a high-quality organization. That is, it has a high-quality strat- high strategy, it is able to implement the strategy in a high-quality way, And is able to learn when it is not a quality organization. So that logic already exists at the production level, but somehow organizations and their leaders have not recognized because of issues of power, lack of mission that they might not know everything, which was exactly the opposite of what you did and succeeded with, uh, that they need help.
0: Well, and it's interesting coming out of engineering school and I have a son now that's come out of engineering school. And when you talk about managers not knowing how to do this, we're, I don't feel that we're really equipping and I, I didn't do my undergraduate in business, but I, I did an MBA. I'm not sure that we're equipping managers and leaders and engineers and all different kinds of people. With these skills, do you do you see some type of a transformation that needs to happen in the way that we're that we're educating leaders to be capable of doing this?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I don't think we're doing it. I think uh, well, we may be doing it in spots here and there. I'm not condemning every school and every leadership development program and every course, but as a general rule, uh, we don't do that. We don't. When, when we talk about, so let's, let's reframe this as a leadership problem, okay? We, we spend millions, uh, I've written an article about this in the Harvard Business Review, why, why leadership training fails, or, or if you will, why we, why, we, uh, why we have the great training robbery. We, we, we train leaders in all kinds of skills and capabilities and perspectives. When in fact, what we should really be training them, I, I'm not arguing that these are bad, they don't do any harm but I'm arguing they don't really provide much value uh, and return when, when we should really be helping them learn how to have honest conversations about what's really going on in their organization and with their own leadership. And if Mm -hmm. they get that information, they will act on it. I mean, these are, these are not technical problems. They're most organizational problems are human problems. They Mm -hmm. involve people not working well together They involve structures and processes that are not designed to enable them to work together, like the new product development teams that we created back in Corning. Uh, So basically, if they learn what those things are, it's not that complicated to really solve the problems once you know them, as you know from your own experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me give you an example I start with in the book Uh, in 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 2010. Ed Ludwig, an outgoing CEO of Beckton Dickinson, and his successor, uh, Vince decided, and their team decided that the company needed to become much more innovative in order to grow faster. And it would not be growing. It would not be as successful as it was in the past. It was a highly successful company. So this was a let's do what we need to do in the next 10 or 20 years. Let's figure out how to do it. So instead of hiring a large consulting firm or providing lower levels with instructions of what to do, because they weren't sure what to do, just like you weren't uh, completely sure either, they commissioned this strategic fitness process. Ed had used it to take over the company and learn some, some difficult and, in, in some cases, ugly truths about what was going on in the company, and it helped them turn around uh, turn around a poor performance. This was now, let's get better performance. Let's become a, an Olympian, rather than just a uh, you know a, a much better athlete, this process led to the, all kinds of insights uh, from the, from a task force about what barriers were. It allowed shifting of roles and responsibilities, uh, of uh, of structural changes, planning changes in the planning process, changes in the in the capital allocation process, uh, I- improvements in the innovation system. Etc. Cetera, et cetera, I won't go into all the details, but they found that that was a very powerful way. And over about the eight, last eight or nine years, Vince, who took over from Ed, has, has led a very successful transformation of the company. Uh, and he didn't, he, as he says, he it wasn't that he didn't have any ideas. Of course he did. Most every leader has ideas, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't that he didn't fully know how to implement the ideas, nor did he have the full Uh, agenda of ideas that he needed to have. And he said, you know, I learned a lot uh, about how to uh, how to build on the ideas I had and how to modify them uh, in a way that that really worked.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. I was sharing with my students at ANU the other evening as a consultant coming in. And even when you have as a management consultant, you have lots of ideas also. But um, to engage people in the conversation such that they buy into the solutions, um, that they're providing insights into the problems. And I have a saying about the half-baked potato, worked with a a major airline, their head of engineering and construction a couple of years ago, and and, uh, their directors in revamping kind of their responsibilities. And I said, I can come in here and tell you what I think they should be, but... I'd rather half bake the potato and let them bake the the potato the rest of the way with us, which we did. <laughs> yeah,
1: great, great and metaphor. it was
0: very, it was very successful. And I remember this person in a meeting going, I love baking the potato together. It became kind of this mantra for us, but yeah. With transparency and conversation, you also do get people to buy into the solutions that they're being asked to implement.
1: Well, yeah. In fact, I argue that you really should start there. Uh, many managers sort of get a lot of ideas. They tell the organization what they are, and then they may ask for some feedback. But that does not allow the systemic change that I are underlying. This whole thing is the notion that organizations are systems mm-hmm. and all systems have. uh have complexity in them, they are multiple facets. You, there's no way for any single individual to understand all the facets, not only because even the hard facets, let alone the soft facets. And in order to create a fundamental transformation, you need a deeper, deeper meaning you, it's got to be connected to emotional components of the organization, the cultural mm-hmm. and emotional components. And if you don't get those, you're just gonna get a bunch of hard changes, and but you won't get that trust and commitment. And you won't really understand the, your own underlying assumptions that are leading in, in how you lead and manage that are leading to the problem. And, you yeah. know, so so you need to do that. And uh, do I want to find out what my that my assumptions are wrong? No human being does. Uh, but when you're a leader, uh, you need to develop those capabilities and strengthen those capabilities and be different from most people, if you will, in this regard. Uh, athletes have to develop an athletic uh physique. Uh, CEOs, I'm arguing, if they're going to be great CEOs and boards are going to select CEOs, they ought to select them on their uh, psychological physique and their skills in embracing these kinds of approaches.
0: Mm -hmm. That's so amazing. I know that people are going to have such an amazing benefit in reading your book, Michael, Fit to Compete, Fitness to Compete. Am I getting the title right? Fit to Compete.
1: Uh, Fit fit to Compete with the strategy and values.
0: Yes. And it's available for pre-order now on Amazon. And um, can we close with just, what's one little nugget, if I'm a leader out there, one little tip that I'm going to learn in your book that I I need to read this book to expand upon it?
1: If you have any any changes that you need to make in your organization, I don't care whether it's uh, 10,000 people or a hundred or two hundred people. Stop first and identify you and your senior team. Identify the direction you want to go in, and secondly, go find out what people below. I, we offer a methodology, but whatever way you can, what they what they think is standing in the way of achieving that direction. And if you act on those things, you will be successful.
0: All right. Michael, thank you so much. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule, Greatness. We are um, so fortunate to have your wisdom about uh, creating great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Gretchen. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.